It's Saturday, May the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Along with his former colleague Carl Bernstein, Bob Woodward is still associated in the public mind with his reporting for the Washington Post about the Watergate scandal, which ultimately brought down President Richard Nixon 45 years ago or so now. At the age of 76, Woodward has now covered nine different American presidents, produced vast amounts of journalism, and written a number of in-depth books about successive administrations, particularly those of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. His methods of in-depth interviews with multiple sources, frequently off the record, are sometimes criticised and some of his conclusions, particularly his assertion that Saddam Hussein did in fact possess weapons of mass destruction, have been proven wrong. But most of his writing has stood the test of time and he is in a unique position to offer a long-term view on Donald Trump, which he does in his most recent book, Fear Trump in the White House. I spoke to Bob Woodard in advance of his visit to Dublin in June when he'll be participating in a public conversation at the Olympia Theatre. Bob Woodward, you're very welcome to the podcast. I mean, reading your book, Fear, Trump and the White House, for the first time a few months ago, I was astonished by some of the stuff in it. And then returning to it over the last couple of days because I knew we would be talking there were so many questions came to me, but I suppose the, fir- the first one would be this. I mean, you have more experience, I think it's fair to say, than any other senior journalist of successive White Houses over more than, more than four decades now. This White well, House... Well, I've done books and reporting for the Washington Post on nine presidents. Uh, it was Ken Burns, uh, the great documentarian who reminded me last year that's 20% of the presidents we've had. And so I've tried to think about what's the difference and what is the similarity. And I think one real important point to understand about the American presidency is that the concentration of power is almost unimaginable. As a practical matter, presidents can start wars on their own because as commander-in-chief they can employ the force if they want. They, a president has vast influence uh, on the economy, setting the conditions, defining the conditions. Um, so, uh, And Trump, because he exploits the communication channel so aggressively with the tweets and daily statements on on the driveway at the White House, Uh, he has enhanced his power uh, quite possibly more than any president, at least of the nine I've written about. And could I ask you then, is... Is he exceptional? Having, having seen all those White Houses and all those presidencies, we, we tend to think that there's something extraordinary and unprecedented about this particular moment. Do you see it that way or do you see parallels or, or a, a bigger narrative? Oh, wow. Easier to describe the creation of the universe to a certain extent. Um, there, there is a, a continuity, but uh, my take on Trump when I did this book I could focus on the lies he tells, the untruths, which my newspapers calculated over 9,000, an astonishing number and growing, or on the special counsel Mueller investigation of the Russian uh, meddling in the U.S. election in 2016, or lastly, what he did as president. And my focus, uh, I couldn't find anything new 
about the Russian meddling, which I think now comports with what Mueller found, uh, no coordination. But what Trump does as president really has an impact on everyone in the country. Uh, quite frankly, I think uh, has an impact on everyone uh, in the world. And instead of being a stabilizing force, uh, he is a destabilizing destabilizing force. And uh, we have, let's face it, a governing crisis in this country. He's not focused on governing. He does not have a process or a strategy except uh, let's make America great and then he will decide on the spur of the moment uh, what to do, like uh, doing away with uh, or changing some trade agreements or imposing tariffs on steel, which is a big deal, which he did single-handedly. You write regularly, a regular theme throughout the book is about this cliff edge which the administration is teetering on all the time, that there are people like Gary Cohn who are literally stealing documents off his desk so that he won't sign them. Uh, There are people who are disobeying orders or trying to pretend they haven't received orders. Um, Reading all that, it strikes me that there has to be a law of diminishing returns, that sooner or later... uh, People are going to fall over that cliff more often. A lot of the people you describe in the book are gone from the White House now and are the people who replace them likely to hold the line as as steadfastly? Well, I think uh, a lot of those people are gone. Some of them remain. uh, Three of my best sources on the Trump White House are not named in the book. Their names don't appear in any form. Uh, But this... This is the question. He clearly feels emboldened. And uh, at the same time, I think a lot of people, particularly those who are critics of Trump, have kind of uh, still offer the criticism and have the anxiety. But, well, he's been there two years. That's Trump. And you kind of uh, expect it. In fairness to him, he hasn't started a new war. Uh, The economy is chugging along quite well, I think, uh, imperfectly, much not as as strong as uh, Trump declares, but everything Trump says is always an exaggeration. You you refer to the Mueller report, and one of the most striking parts of the Mueller report in the in the second volume refers to uh, Trump's attempts to remove Mueller himself while he was still uh, in the course of his investigations, and the attempts he made to get Don McGahn to uh, to fire Mueller, uh, and when that wasn't successful, the attempts he made to get Don McGahn to lie about being told to fire Mueller. Um, That seems to be a classic example of how, I suppose, the traditional administration is sort of pushing back against those those Trumpian impulses. But Don McGahn is gone now, isn't he? And is is Trump going likely to be resisted as much the next time he tries something like that? Well, we're going to have to do more reporting to answer that uh, question. But uh, the process of AIDS in the White House taking unilateral action, like the counsel um, again not doing what Trump asked, is exactly what I opened my book with, where, as you point out, Gary Cohen, the chief economic 
advisor in the Trump White House for the first uh, year plus. Uh, a former president of Goldman Sachs took papers off Trump's desk uh, to prevent Trump from uh, initiating an avalanche of problems with military alliances, not just trade agreements, but also the top-secret intelligence partnerships. So uh, who's restraining Trump now, uh, if anyone, of course, is the should be the subject of more reporting and perhaps another book. What's your view on the Mueller report now, now that we've had a chance to read it in more detail over over a couple of weeks? Um, is there anything in it that you didn't expect? Well, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, it conforms with the erratic, impulsive, nervous breakdown of the presidency that I described in my book. And uh, Mueller, I, look, let's face it, everyone in this country who covers Trump uh, everyone, almost everyone, was quite surprised that Mueller didn't find some secret uh, coordination between Trump or Trump aides and Russia on the meddling in the election. And he didn't. And on the obstruction of justice, uh, he, he kind of comes out uh, both ways. But the attorney general, who's the authority here, has said they're not going to try to bring charges on Trump. So what we have to do is, quite frankly, get over the Mueller report and uh, absorb its findings, which are really important, Uh, paint that picture of Trump uh, doing things and saying things that are, are really out of line for the presidency. As I'm saying, he he destabilizes things rather than calms them down. And you have been quite critical in recent days of the way in which law enforcement um, relied upon or took seriously the the famous or infamous Steele dossier. Uh, Yes, yes. I think it should be investigated fully. I think the idea that it was presented to Trump uh, with uh, one of the stellar intelligence reports with well-documented sources and then to throw in something like this uh, that was unsubstantiated. It was the wrong route to take. And as you know, uh, Mueller uh, found lots of these claims in the the Steele dossier uh, not true or unverifiable. Uh, At the same time, there's something about Trump and Russia that has not been fully explained. And again, that will be the topic of more reporting. Can I ask you something about journalism as a profession? I mean, I think there's probably nobody in the world more than you who isn't the sort of a symbol who has caused many, many people to decide that they wanted to become journalists because of the work you've done, particularly starting with Watergate and onwards. There seems to be a confusion sometimes these days about what journalism is, or a confusion between journalism on the one hand and being a pundit on the other. I think you've expressed some reservations about the way in which people view opinion columns and panels on cable TV as being journalism in the same way as the work you do. 
Yes, there's been a big change, of course, the impatience and speed of the Internet and cable news uh, drives a lot of this. Back during the Watergate era, uh, Catherine Graham, the publisher, owner of the Washington Post, uh, after Nixon resigned in 1974, wrote Carl Bernstein and myself a personal letter and uh, said, now, you did some of the stories, Nixon's gone, don't start thinking too highly of yourself. And then she said, let me give you some advice, and that is beware the demon pomposity. And I think there's a lot of pomposity, particularly on television, on Fox News, uh, endless adoration of Trump and cheerleading for much of what he does uh, on CNN and MSNBC, it's con uh, almost constant condemnation of what he does. And as you say, what's the job of the reporter? I think the job of the reporter is to get the facts, find out what happened, be rigorous, uh, deal with uh, Everyone in all sides, uh, what uh, it was Graham Greene, the great novelist, who said, don't despise your enemies or those that you disagree with strongly. They have a case. I think it's the job of the journalist to understand every case and find some way to present it uh, and get what Carl Bernstein and I always called the best obtainable version of the truth, which is, can you verify, but it has to be obtainable, and of course you never get the full version of the truth, and you have to realize that, and so uh, there has to be some way to get the smugness, the sometimes pomposity, the... the uh, certainty that people, particularly on television, voice opinions, and I think it just raises the temperature, political temperature in the country in a, in a way that uh, is getting out of hand, and somehow we've got to find a way to slow that down. I'm not sure how you do that. Does it depress you that when you do that work and you do that good work, there are probably, there are certainly many millions of people in your country who will never believe it because of who you are and because of who you write for and that media has become so tribal in that sense. Well, yes, that that's true. And the distrust of the media, look, Trump has very cleverly adopted the old Nixon strategy from Watergate. What Nixon did is, oh, let's make the conduct of the press the issue, not the conduct of the president. And uh, Trump does that uh, with these attacks about fake news and enemy of the people. Uh, I look, all of us in this business make mistakes. I've made too many. You have to step up to them and, and correct them if you can. Uh, at the same time, I think the basic work of journalists in the United States, particularly for the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, a lot of the networks, uh, it's all done in good faith. And 
for Trump to just issue this blanket declaration, oh, it's fake news, uh, they're enemies, they're making things up. Uh, he's wrong on that. And somehow uh, we're going to figure out, I believe, a way to establish more authority and credibility. As I did this book, because I had the time, I could go back to people and get diaries and notes and documentation. And uh, there is an authenticity in the book that even Trump supporters realized. I've had many, not hundreds, but dozens that I've encountered say, yeah, I support Trump and I really believe in him and like him. I've read your book and I'm not sure I like all of it, but I understand uh, what's going on. And quite frankly, lots of them say they don't like a number of the things he does, like tweeting all the time. I think that gets him in trouble. I, I do wonder, though, when I, I think of that uh, anonymous New York Times column from late last year from somebody who was supposed to be an administration official and how they were holding the line, as we've described, as some of the others do. There's a there's a fundamental compromise in what they're doing there. Gary Cohn got the tax cuts that he wanted. Don McGahn got the people onto the Supreme Court and the other senior courts that he wanted to do. An accommodation has been made, certainly in the Republican Party. A deal has been made in a way, hasn't it, that it accepts this behaviour in return for achieving policy objectives? I don't think those people uh, have made deals. I think what uh, they develop, because uh, it is a toxic, atmosphere in the Trump White House, they develop what I'd call survival strategies of trying to do the right thing, uh, doing doing the job as they see it, and uh, resisting Trump. Uh, In the case of that New York Times famous uh, op-ed piece, it doesn't have any specifics. And if that person had come to me and said, I'd like to run this, would like you to run this is an appendix to uh, your book, I would say, well, give me some specifics. And there are not specifics in uh, that op-ed piece. And uh, if I couldn't get specifics, I would have said, take it to the New York Times. Hmm. There's there's a fascination, an ongoing fascination with Watergate. And that fascination, I think, has increased in recent years because there are some parallels between then and now. Uh, one, one simple question. If there hadn't been recording equipment installed in the Oval Office, do you think Nixon would have had to resign? No, I think Nixon uh, had to leave office because the Republicans turned against him because the quality of evidence on those secret tape recordings established the, the crimes and lies he had committed and the day Nixon resigned and left the White House, he said in a very important uh, farewell address the following, always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. Now think of the wisdom in that. Nixon realized it was the hate 
that was the engine of his presidency, that the hate is what uh, destroyed not his enemies, but him. And, uh, you know, is is Trump a hater? Um, How is he different? I mean, there's some similarities, uh, but... This, these investigations in the U.S. Congress are going to go on, and uh, maybe people will find more and new information. Isn't there, though, a profound difference between the political climate in the United States then and now that uh, the party politics between the Democrats and Republicans was less polarized and that allowed a coalition to emerge in, in Congress against Nixon? A cross-party coalition? Yes, but again, the coalition against Nixon, when the Republicans uh, switched sides and said too many crimes, too many lies, that was because of the evidence. But there is a polarization here, which uh, in, in the end, I think, really serves no one except people who are on the extreme left and the extreme right. Uh, you've got to make deals. Well, you, Trump's background in New York City real estate, uh, which is all about deal-making, but he hasn't made many deals as president. And I think he has a feeling of self-validation being president because people said he shouldn't run, certainly would not get the Republican nomination, widespread expectation he would not win. And he did, and he knows he did it. Uh, himself, and so he he's empowered. The president is, has power no matter what, but he's psychologically empowered. Ah, I got myself here. It is what I did, and so instead of listening to people, he tries to just say, well, this is my belief from 30 years ago, or this is my impulse this day, and there is not a governing process to control uh, and manage these decisions. And that's the risk. We now have the Donald risk, and it's defining America now. I had um, Michael Lewis on this podcast a couple of months ago about his book, The Fifth Risk, which is about what's actually happening one stage further down in the US government as a result of the chaos which you describe in the White House. And one of the things that struck me about that, and I'd be grateful for your view on it, is that the American system is is inherently rather un- unstable compared to most political systems. The, the huge, huge power which you described at the outset, the imperial presidency as it has developed in the 20th century, is, is ripe for something terrible happening, which might be what we're seeing happen now. Well, this is the danger, and uh, a, a president needs to be a person who under, is set, uh, will kind of say, what's my job? And the president's job is not to just come in and be the bull in the China shop and say, oh, this is what I think we should do. The president, uh, it, it, what, what happens, uh, presidents uh, inherit the unfinished business of their predecessor. And so... There's lots of unfinished business in the Obama presidency. Trump inherited it, but 
some of it actually would serve his purposes if he would settle down and think through in a strategic way. And uh, the obligation of the president is to figure out the next stage of good for a majority of people in the country and then calmly ascertain that those goals and then have a way of getting there. Just Trump does not think that way. And uh, as I say, uh, the risk is I think we've kind of lapsed into a sleepfulness in this country about the danger and that risk. One of the things that strikes me about the Mueller report is that it uh, it proves that the vast majority of the really good reporting and investigative journalism, which was done particularly by the Washington Post and the New York Times over the preceding two years, was true. Uh, that a lot of the things, that the vast majority of the things that were reported were true, even though they were denied at the time by the administration. We hear now that the the major legal moves such as they are against against Donald Trump and the Trump organization will be coming out of the Southern District of New York. I know your focus is on the White House, but should an intrepid reporter maybe be looking more towards Manhattan? Yes, I think that's right. And I think what these investigations that are continuing are a lot of money investigations. I think they're the Mueller report uh, identifies 12 investigations that are going on uh, by other U.S. attorneys, in other words, the federal prosecutor uh, in New York and in the uh, area here of Washington. So uh, this is not over. Um, and one of the lingering questions that just kind of pulses through it, if if Trump gets cornered, and to a certain extent, uh, the Democrats in the House of Representatives are moving against him and trying to corner him, what will he do with that extraordinary power he has uh, in his office? And I think that's what people in the administration and the Republican Party also worry about. Because the the Watergate event obviously came out as a result of the committee to re-elect the president, creep as it was called at the time. I, I see a note in front of me here that you sent to Jeff Bezos who got entangled in a strange blackmail web involving the National Enquirer and allegedly the Saudis as well. And you said, this period reminds me of 1972 to 74, perhaps Watergate Redux, so many assaults on constitutional government, common sense and privacy. That sounds pretty bleak. Yes, it, well, it, it's it, there are a lot of uh, things going on that are whether they're criminal or not. Um, I I don't know, but they certainly and see these these aberrant actions, particularly by Trump, are like magnets. They attract all the media attention, and, and rightly so. But we then, you know, what's the trade deal? What's the relationship? in a practical sense, between the United States and the NATO allies in Europe. And uh, Trump has criticized it a great deal. People in the Pentagon, the military say, oh, well, it's it's still working, it's fine. But, uh, you know, that could be tested at any moment. So, uh, you know, my 
you keep your seatbelt on and maybe get a shoulder harness. <laughs> Finally, I see a report in Axios this week that you might be considering a second book on the Trump presidency. Yes, yeah, I, I, I may do it. I'm doing reporting, of course, and uh, as Trump always says, we'll see. We'll await that with great interest. Bob Woodward, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. And Bob Woodward's book, Fear Trump in the White House, is published by Simon & Schuster. A public conversation with Bob Woodward on the state of the US presidency, moderated by Fintan O'Toole, will take place in the Olympia Theatre Dublin on Monday, June the 10th. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to those of you who've been in touch with me about the podcast in recent weeks. Those messages are always very welcome, and you can send them to me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com, or you can at me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. 